welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature John Stott, described as the presumptive Pope, yet so little is known about the man who had won exceptional honors. In 2011, the evangelical world lost one of its greatest spokesmen. And I have lost one of my closest friends and advisors, said Billy Graham. Whether in the West or in the Third World, a hallmark of Stott's ministry has been expository preaching that addresses not only the hearts, but also the minds of contemporary men and women. Today, John Stott presents a sermon on Mark's portrait of Jesus as the suffering servant of others. For the benefit of those of you who have uh, not been here before, you may recall Richard Buys mentioned that uh, we are looking at the four Gospels, the God-given fourfold portrait of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And the background to our study is the multiplicity of Jesuses who are on offer in the world today. I mentioned some of them last week. There is Jesus the ascetic, And there is Jesus the clown. There is Jesus the capitalist and Jesus the socialist. There is Jesus the critic of the establishment and Jesus the champion of the establishment. There is Jesus the freedom fighter and there is Jesus the disillusioned superstar. In contrast to these and many other fantasies of the human mind, for all those that I mentioned are either distorted or actually false, we turn with some relief to the Gospels and to the portrait, the fourfold portrait that God in his providence has made available to us, which bears witness to the authentic Jesus. Not the Jesus of human fantasy, but the Jesus of history, the Jesus of reality. Well, we began last Sunday night by looking at Matthew's portrait, and we saw that his portrait is Jesus the Christ of Scripture. The great emphasis that Matthew lays is on the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of centuries of rich Old Testament expectation. And we turn now tonight from Matthew to Mark, and Mark's portrait of Jesus is of the servant, the suffering servant of God and of man who calls us to be suffering servants as well. I wonder, by the way, if I may pause a moment, if you knew that, that unless suffering and service mark our Christian life, we are not authentic followers of Jesus. Suffering and service characterized his life and they characterize all true followers of Jesus today. So keep your eyes open for that thought as we go through this evening. Now, there are other differences between Matthew and Mark that I want to mention by way of introduction. One interesting one is that Matthew concentrates on the teaching of Jesus. We saw last Sunday night that he gives us five great blocks of teaching in his gospel that may be deliberately a parallel to the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. 
Mark, on the other hand, is much more interested in the actions of Jesus than in his words. The Gospel of Mark is an action-packed narrative. It seems that his favorite word is immediately. He uses it so often in the text. As one event follows another in breathless sequence. And these stories that Mark records in his gospel are illumined by vivid touches that have obviously come from an eyewitness and probably from Peter with whom he was closely associated. Because Mark was not one of the twelve apostles himself. He wasn't an eyewitness of Jesus at all. Unless conceivably, as some people think, it is Mark who is the anonymous young man whom he mentions in chapter 14 and verses 51-52 of the gospel who maybe got out of bed rather late and followed Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane having on only, uh, as we would say, his pajamas or as they would say, his outer garment. And when Jesus was arrested, a soldier laid hold of that young man and Mark left the garment in his hand and ran off naked into the night. Mark is the only one who tells that little story, and nobody knows who that young fellow was, but it may have been Mark himself. If so, that was about the only opportunity he had to be an eyewitness of Jesus. But he wasn't one of the apostles. However, the early church fathers in the early centuries of the church tell us that Mark was a very close associate of Peter. Indeed, we know this already from the New Testament because Peter tells us in his first letter, chapter 5 and verse 13, that Mark is my dear son. He refers to him in a very affectionate way, either because he led him to Christ or because he felt affectionately towards him as if he was his father and Mark was his son. Well, Papias, who was a bishop round about 140 AD, refers to Mark as Peter's interpreter. Justin, ten years later, says that Mark wrote down Peter's memoirs. Arrhenius, a little bit later, about 180 AD, calls Mark the disciple and the interpreter of Peter who wrote down the substance of Peter's preaching. So, as we look at the Gospel of Mark, it's good for us to remember that what we are really hearing is not Mark's story of Jesus, and not Mark's portrait of Jesus, but Peter's. Peter, who was one of the intimate three, and indeed the passage I'm going to bring to you tonight is very obviously a reminiscence of Peter himself. So instead of giving you an overview of the gospel, as I tried to do of the gospel of Matthew last week, I want to take one passage only, which is the turning point in the narrative of Mark, because it is the watershed in the ministry of Jesus. Before I ask you to turn to it, just let me open it up to you a little bit like this. This passage tells us, as you'll notice when I read it to you again, This passage tells us both who Jesus was and is and who we must be if we are to be true followers of Jesus. 
Or if you like, I'll put it a different way. In this passage, Jesus defines both his messiahship and our discipleship. And what is fascinating and of the very greatest significance is that the cross is at the center of both. There is no messiahship of Jesus without the cross and there is no discipleship for us without the cross. At the very heart of his ministry and at the very heart of our discipleship is the cross and what that implies in terms of service and suffering. Well, the scene is a village near Caesarea Philippi, up north in Palestine, up in the foothills of Mount Hermon, somewhere very close to the source of the River Jordan, and this is what happened. Will you turn, please, in your Bible to the New Testament section? And the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, that Marian read to us just now, <clears throat> I want to read again from verse 27. Mark 8, 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. I've already mentioned up in the foothills of Mount Hermon, North Palestine. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? They said, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. And Jesus said, what about you? Who do you say that I am? They said, you're the Christ. Or Peter said, you're the Christ. And he charged them to tell nobody about him. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But he rebuked Peter. Said get behind me Satan. You are not on the side of God but of men. Then he called the multitudes with the disciples and said to them. If anybody will come after me. Let him deny himself. And take up his cross as I must take up my cross and let him follow me. The cross is at the heart of his messiahship and it is at the heart of our discipleship. That's the message tonight in a nutshell because it's the very essence of the gospel of Mark. So we begin first, and this will be our longest section, with messiahship, who Jesus was. People were saying he was John the Baptist, the forerunner, Elijah, or one of the other prophets. But Peter said, no, you're not a prophet. You're the fulfillment of prophecy. You are the Christ to whom the prophets pointed. Well, that much is clear. But what kind of a Messiah had Jesus come to be? Galilee in which Jesus at that time uh, was speaking, Galilee is known to have been a hotbed of messianic expectations. And most people were expecting the Messiah when he came 
and they were in feverish anticipation of his coming at the beginning of the first century, most of them believed that he would be a political figure, a warrior king descended from King David who would lead an insurrection against Rome, who would drive the legions into the Mediterranean Sea and recover Israel's lost national independence. You see, they had a vision of the Messiah as a political, a military, a royal figure who would give Israel back their national independence. Now, Jesus knew this. Jesus knew that was the expectation, and it worried him a great deal because he hadn't come to be that kind of Messiah at all. Only very recently, uh, it comes a chapter or two earlier in Mark's account, only very recently, Jesus had fed 5,000 people and more with five barley loaves and a couple of sardines. And you know, John tells us, because it's very interesting, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle recorded by all four evangelists. And John tells us that when he'd accomplished the miracle, the rumor started going through the crowd, this is the Messiah. So much so that some of them came and they were on the point of taking him by force in order to make him a king. That's, I've quoted from John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 15. They, they'd come by force to make him a king. And Jesus withdrew, he escaped into the mountains alone. He had not come to be a political messiah or a national king of that kind. In fact, before his ministry began, he renounced the temptation to seek either military or political power. Instead, he'd come to suffer and to die for our sins on the cross. And that's why, in the early part of his ministry, whenever people had a bit of an inkling that he might be a Messiah, the Messiah, he swore them to secrecy. Tell nobody about it, he said. Not just because he was shy of publicity, but for this reason, listen carefully, they were not ready to know the fact of his messiahship until they had grasped its character. Until they had realized the kind of messiah he'd come to be, he wasn't ready for them to know that he was a messiah at all. So look at our text. Verse 30. He charged them to tell nobody that he was the Messiah. Verse 31, he began to teach them. Notice it's the first time he did so. That's why we call it the watershed in his ministry. He began to teach what he'd not taught hitherto. He began to teach the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and be killed. And then verse 32, he said this, plainly. Have you ever noticed that? Notice the contrast between the secrecy of verse 30, don't tell anybody, and the openness of verse 32. He said it plainly. He was open about the necessity of his sufferings, but secretive about the fact of his messiahship until they'd understood 
that he was going to suffer and die. Well, Peter hadn't understood it at all. Peter impulsively, immediately objected. Peter was brash enough to contradict Jesus. He rebuked Jesus. And in the fiercest terms, we read in Matthew's Gospel, he said to Jesus, This shall never be to you, Lord. No, Lord. God forbid, Lord. He contradicted Jesus' statement that it was necessary for him to suffer. So, if Peter rebuked Jesus, Jesus rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan. And Peter, who had been the organ of divine revelation in confessing that Jesus was the Messiah, now became the organ of satanic deception in trying to stop Jesus from going to the cross. So let's try and clarify this a little more clearly in our minds. How did Jesus understand his Messiahship? Well, he did it by fusing into one portrait two apparently contradictory images in the Old Testament. On the one hand, he said he was the Son of Man. And the Son of Man was his most popular, his favorite self-designation. He liked to refer to himself as the Son of Man. Well, of course, in a way, that simply meant man. It's a Hebrew or an Aramaic uh, expression for a human being. But it meant more than that. If you look on to verse 38, the second part, he says, The Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father. The Son of Man is a glorious figure in one of the great visions of Daniel in chapter 7 of his prophecy. But in that prophecy, that vision of Daniel, he says that he saw one like a Son of Man, a human figure, coming in the clouds of heaven, standing before the Ancient of Days, the living God, receiving dominion, a kingdom and glory so that all nations would serve him and his kingdom would be everlasting and his dominion indestructible. You see, the Son of Man is a figure of glory who was going to be served by all the nations in his everlasting kingdom. That was one picture, the Son of Man. But on the other hand, he said the Son of Man must suffer. And here he is referring to the first lesson that was read to us tonight, the suffering servant of Yahweh, the suffering servant of the Lord, in Isaiah particularly, verse 53. And uh, a couple of chapters later on in Mark, chapter 10, verse 45, that was read earlier, he said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, Though that is what he had come to be in Daniel 7, that all nations should serve him. But Jesus said, no, the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Another reference, allusion to Isaiah 53. Here then were two pictures. As Daniel, Son of Man, he comes with glory to be served. But as Isaiah's suffering servant, he comes not to be served, 
but to serve. So the two pictures appear to be mutually contradictory. In fact, uh, Oscar Kuhlmann, the famous Swiss theologian, has put it like this. Son of man represents in Judaism the highest conceivable declaration of exaltation. But the servant of the Lord is the expression of deepest humiliation. The two pictures seem contradictory, but Jesus fuses them. He takes that revolutionary step of saying, the glorious Son of Man must suffer. Before he could be served, he had come to serve. Before he could be exalted, he had to be humiliated. Before he could reign, he had to suffer. And before he could rise to his glory, he had to die. And that is the key to Mark's gospel. That's why this is the watershed. From now on, Jesus is going to Jerusalem to suffer. Up to this point, he's been in Galilee ministering, quite a triumphalist ministry, but now he's going to Jerusalem. And Mark's gospel is divided in half by these two things. The book of his ministry in Galilee, the book of his passion as he goes to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. Half the gospel of Mark is devoted to his sufferings and his death. So let me run through it very clearly, very carefully or very briefly because the other evangelists follow where Mark pioneers. If Mark was the first gospel, as most of us believe, as I said last week. So three times from now on, Mark records Jesus as plainly predicting that he must suffer and die. Mary of Bethany comes and anoints him. She breaks her alabaster box, a precious ointment, pours it over his head. And Jesus said, she's anointed me for my burial. In the upper room, he distributes bread and wine, saying, this is my body given for you. This is my blood of the covenant poured out for many. His body given, his blood shed for our redemption. Then he suffered agony in the garden of Gethsemane. Then he endured arrest, his trials before the Sanhedrin and before Pontius Pilate. He endured condemnation, mockery, and crucifixion. And in the three hours of darkness on the cross, he uttered the loud cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, the Son of God, God forsaken on the cross because of our sin and its just reward. And then he died, and then, of course, later rose again. But Mark lays emphasis on the sufferings and the death of Jesus. I wonder if we could remember this. The Jesus who Mark portrays, whom Peter behind Mark portrays, was not a political or a national or a military leader but the fulfillment of the suffering servant of Isaiah who would enter into the glory of the Son of Man only by first becoming the suffering servant. That's the portrait of the Messiah, suffering in order to reign. 
Now secondly, we move from the Messiahship to the discipleship. From his Messiahship to our discipleship. From who he is to who we are or who we need to be if we are authentic followers of his. Well, look again, if you will, at the text, verse 34. He called the multitude with his disciples to him and said, If anybody will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Notice the if anybody. Jesus makes a statement of universal application. He is not referring to a spiritual elite of apostles or saints or martyrs. He's referring to you and me, every Tom, Dick, and Harry, every solitary person, every Mary, Martha, and Helen, if the Tom, Dick, and Harry is too sexist for you. (laughs) Every single follower of Jesus Christ is to take up the cross, to deny ourselves, and to follow Jesus. Now, I want to ask you to notice that there are negative and positive aspects to the discipleship that he describes here. We look at it first negatively. Let him deny himself or herself. Let him take up his cross and follow me. Here are two pictures, self-denial and cross-bearing, two pictures which both mean the same thing. To deny ourselves is to do to ourselves what Peter did to Jesus when he denied him. It is exactly the same Greek verb. He disowned him. He turned his back on him. He repudiated him. Now, of course, we're not to repudiate everything that goes to make up our human identity. Some parts of us are the good gifts of a good creator. Our rationality... Our sexuality, our creativity, our moral sense, our capacity for love, our awareness of the reality of God. These things are part of our humanness, which, because they've been given to us by a good creator, are certainly not to be denied. On the contrary, they are to be affirmed as coming from God. So we affirm everything in our humanness, that is attributable to our creation. It is what is attributable to the fall and to our sinfulness and our selfishness. It is that that we are to deny. Our pride, envy, malice, lust, ambition, those things we deny, disown and repudiate. As Charles Cranfield writes in his commentary on Mark, to deny ourselves is to turn away from the idolatry of self-centeredness. It is to deny myself my own self-centeredness. Then to take up the cross means the same thing. It's another picture of the same thing. We know that when the Romans condemned somebody to death by crucifixion, they obliged that poor person to carry the cross beam of the cross to the place of execution. That's what Jesus did. Mark describes it later. Jesus took up his cross and went to the place of execution. He stumbled under it. It's true, Simon of Cyrene had to carry it for him. But normally, the condemned prisoner on his way to execution carries a cross. 
So if we saw somebody carrying a cross in those days, we wouldn't have needed to ask them what on earth they were doing. We would have recognized them immediately as on their way to execution. So if we take up our cross and follow Christ, there is only one place to which we can be following him, the place of crucifixion, the place of execution. Not, in our case, literally. He's not necessarily referring to martyrdom. He is referring to the crucifixion of our false self, the repudiation of everything within us, that is incompatible with the goodness of the will of God. So we are to die, to deny ourselves and to die to ourselves in order to follow Christ. So Bonhoeffer put it beautifully. He said, when Christ calls a man or woman, he bids them die to their own self-centeredness. There then is the negative aspect of our discipleship. There is a cross at the center of our Christian life. But the positive aspect in verses 35 to 38 is that to deny ourselves is the only way to discover ourselves. The road to self-discovery is self-denial. So if you see me determined to live a selfish life, if you're determined, Jesus says, to save yourself, to hold on to yourself, you'll lose yourself. But only if you're willing to lose yourself, to give yourself away in the service of God and others, then in the moment of abandon, when you think everything is lost, you find yourself. You find yourself when you lose yourself. But if you insist on holding on to yourself, you will lose yourself. It's the amazing paradox of Christian freedom. Well, let me conclude. There are many, many people in our world, and probably some here, both young men and women, who are looking for a guru. You're looking for a model, for a leader, for a popular hero. And I guess that sometimes we even cast Jesus in this triumphalist mode. It may be you rather fancy yourself in the retinue of Jesus Christ with the trumpets blaring and the flags flying and the banners waving, enjoying health and wealth, long life and happiness and prosperity and victory. You rather like the idea of being part of the crusade of Jesus Christ. My friend, it's a false picture, at least partially but seriously distorted. Because what you are asking for is a Christianity without a cross, both for Christ and for yourself. And there is no Christianity without the cross. And what you need to do, if I may say so, what I need constantly to do also, is to read and reread Mark's, which is Peter's portrait of Jesus Christ with the cross at the center. At the heart of his portrait of Jesus is the cross. At the heart of his portrait of the disciple is the cross. For him and for us, for the Messiah and for the disciple, the very same principle operates. 
Here it is. Self-denial is the only way to self-discovery. Only if we humble ourselves shall we be exalted. There'll be no rain without pain, no crown without a cross, and suffering is the path to glory as death is the way to life. It's absolutely at the center of the Christianity of the New Testament. Let's pray together. We need to be silent for a few moments and to ask ourselves if we've seen the place of the cross in Jesus Christ, in his life, and if we've seen the place of the cross in our own lives. Where is the cross? Is it at the center or is it on the circumference? That's the question. Let's ask it and answer it with integrity. We would like to thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for the fourfold portrait of you that we've been given in the New Testament, and in particular tonight that we've been able to behold the man, the suffering servant of the Lord, the one who went to the cross for us, bore our sin, guilt, penalty, judgment as our substitute and in our place. We worship you, Lord Jesus. Grant that we may be willing to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow you to crucifixion, to death, so that by denying ourselves we may discover ourselves and by losing ourselves may find our true selves. Granted for every one of us that we may enter into this glorious truth and paradox that your service is perfect freedom. We ask it for the glory of your great name. Amen. You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.